Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is sufficient and that it is all we need for the living of this day is that it tells us of our need of a Savior and it tells us for the remedy that our Savior is, that he is our hope and he is our salvation and we are thankful for him. Father, I do pray with Paul this morning that you would, by your power, enlighten us, give us eyes to see these truths and give us a great confidence in you for the living of these days. Take away the fear and the anxiety of life, and may we for, the, and may we for these few moments relish, relish in your word and be comforted by your word and encouraged by that word. And I pray that in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I can truly say that in my present status, this is one of the greatest joys of my life, uh, is to be an elder for you at this church. Uh, I think it's a great privilege to be an under-shepherd here, although sometimes it is a very tiring work. It is physically draining, emotionally draining, spiritually draining, and we all and I get tired in the work. We never get tired of the work. And we're thankful for it. It's rewarding for me and for you and for us as elders to see you grow in grace. We love to teach you and we love to be taught by you. And uh, so I'm thankful for this opportunity. And how many prayers of healing have we seen in this place? How many times has God, by His grace, sustained us in sorrow of death and sorrow of disappointments and with family sorrows that we all face in this fallen world and how many times have we seen God move in this place in the hearts of our families in the hearts of our friends our acquaintances and other loved ones truly this body is a blessed body and I'm grateful for this special place God's love is manifested here make no doubt about it his glory is sought here his word is believed and is taught here His grace is sufficient here, and prayerfully you are shepherded well here. So I want to take this text this morning, and I want to teach the Word to you, preach the Word to you, to encourage you. Uh, We need to be encouraged, and I want to remind you. Peter said in his last epistle before by tradition he was up he was crucified upside down after he had watched his wife be crucified upside down. And he told his wife, remember the Lord. And so I want us to encourage you and I want to remind you. Peter said, I don't want to neglect to remind you always. He says, I want to stir you up by reminding you. And I want to be careful always to remind you. So that's the prayer of my heart today, that you would be reminded of this good doctrine. And then lastly, I'm going to use a Terry word. It's not a word for me. I want to stimulate you into thinking about God's word. So as the Spirit of God sanctifies you and as you fulfill your role in the sanctification process, that you would be encouraged by this word. So let me read this. The Apostle Paul has been a a pastor at the church of Ephesus for three years. And the last recording of him, as he communicated with them, was a very emotional recording. It was found in Acts chapter 20. Uh, He prayed for the church at Ephesus. He hugged on the necks of the people of the church at Ephesus. And he loved them because he knew by the Spirit that he was about to be arrested and persecuted for suffering and suffering for Christ. He knew he wouldn't see him again. So the last thing he said to them was, I love you. I pray for you. And he said, there's going to be wolves come in this place. And they're going to present false teaching. And we know from history that it was probably Hymenus and Alexandria, probably elders within that church who brought in false teaching to the church. And so we know Paul knew this by the Spirit, and so he warned them. He passed the torch to Timothy. Timothy passed the torch to Tychicus, I believe. And then Tychicus, what a hall of fame of preachers. John the Apostle was a pastor at Ephesus. And we know 30 years later, as Paul spoke from Patmos, where he was exiled on the island, he warned the church at Ephesus 
not to leave your first love. So we have a great history from the church at Ephesus, many things we can learn from the church. So let me read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He's put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over the church, over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Paul, you notice that Paul didn't pray that the church would not have any trouble. He didn't pray that the church would have physical riches. He didn't pray that the church would have health. He didn't pray that the church would be happy. He didn't pray that the church would be comfortable. He prayed that the church would know Christ, Him crucified. And the power that comes from Him. So Paul prayed that the church would be transformed by the Word of God and conformed to Jesus Christ. And that's the prayer that we have for you as a body. We pray for you every Tuesday morning. And we pray for you every single day of the week. And we pray that God would grow His grace in each one of you. And that through the trials and through the troubles, that he would make you more like his dear son. And you would know great hope. And you would know what the future is and what the present can be. So I want to talk to us about today. As we look at this, first thing I want us to notice is the first thing he prays for the people. Look at him in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that phrase is used multiple times in the Scripture. If you look at verse 3 of Ephesians 3, Ephesians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, it's also mentioned in Romans chapter 1, it's mentioned in 1 Peter, it's mentioned in other of the epistles and other of the texts of Scripture. It simply links, it simply links the deity together. It links the deity of Christ and it links the deity of the Father. It, it shows that they are one in nature. They're one in essence. They're one in will. They're one in character. They're one in attributes. Although they are three separate persons, Hodge says God the Father is God. God the Son is God. And God the Holy Spirit is God. And when you said this, you've said it all. And so, when he says, God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of the Son, he is simply linking them together. He is simply emphasizing the fact that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our salvation and in our sanctification. So, the apostle starts off with, I thank God of my Father, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And he asks, he prays for four particular things. The first thing he prays for, look in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being lightened. Stop. Notice that he says, it's a gift that has to be given to you. God in His grace, must give us the ability to see, to hear, to comprehend, even to desire Him. It is a spiritually discerned process. God in His salvation is monergistic, we say. 
It is of Him and it is from Him. And we understand that salvation is of the Lord. So when Paul, praying for the church at Ephesus, he says that God must give you an enlightened eye. He must give you spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Remember what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 through 14, he said, But God has revealed these things to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. But the natural man cannot receive, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul prays to the church at Ephesus that God would give them enlightened eyes. And so he does. And he says, may give them this spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What is he talking about this knowledge of him? He's talking about what he's just said in the longest verse in the Greek language, and it is one sentence. It's the greatest sentence that I've ever read. I believe it's the greatest sentence that God has ever allowed a human character to write down as he wrote this sentence. Listen to this sentence. So when Paul prays to the church at Ephesus that he would give them knowledge of him and revelation to him and he would open in their eyes, this should make your head go, this is what he's talking about. Doctrine is incredibly important, and I want you to understand it. Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to understand it, and here is the knowledge he's talking about. Back up to chapter 1, verse 3. Now, I'm going to go fast. Those of you who are OCD and like to write every word said, you're not going to like me very much because I'm going to go fast. Tomorrow morning, over a nice latte or a cup of coffee, After you've asked for God's Spirit to reveal this truth to you, go over this. Get a good concordance. Look up hope. Look up inheritance. Read this verse again and ask God to enlighten your heart and your mind because this is, this should take six weeks to go over these verses. Not going to have that long. I've got a few minutes. Look at the knowledge that Paul wants the church to chew on, to meditate on. Number one, I'm going to go fast. He tells the church that they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Did you know that when you were declared righteous by holy God because of the work of Jesus Christ, you were given every spiritual blessing you needed to exist in the Zoa spiritual life? You've been given the nature of Christ. You've been given the mind of Christ. You've been indwelt by Christ. You've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. And you've been indwelt by God the Father. Think about that. Everything you need, as Peter expressed, everything you need in this world, the power of God and to partake of the divine nature is yours in Christ Jesus right now. Paul said, think about that. And I want you to understand that, that you've been given all these blessings in the spiritual heavenly places. Then he said, we've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. God, before the foundation of the world, chose the people that He gifted to His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gladly came and died for those people whom the Father had given Him. And every one of those people, we're called sheep, will come to the faith in Christ Jesus. That should mind-numb you. That God chose you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. There's never been a nanosecond that God hasn't loved you if you're in Christ Jesus right now. And there will never be another nanosecond in eternity past, in eternity now, in eternity future, that He'll never stop loving you. That should encourage you. 
And if you can't say amen to that, we need to discuss something after church. This is good stuff. This is the power of God in us. He indwells us. We've been chosen in Him. He didn't look down in the future and say, That Don, he's going to do this and that. I want him on my team. He said, No, no, no. I don't want that dead sucker on my team because of anything he would do. It's because what I'm going to do in him. So we understand it's of him. It's for him. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. He didn't look down and say, Hey, at Lee, he's going to be an active participant and be faithful at Grace Bible for 20 years. He's got to be on my team. It's because he chose Lee that Lee is on his team. And it's because he's on his team that God has used him to work in this church for 20 years. Everybody understand this? You can't be backwards in this theology. It's God first. He initiated it. We have been called to be holy. We have been separated to be a holy people. There should be a difference in the way we live, the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we think. We shouldn't be conformed to this world. So he has called us to be sanctified ones, saints. You don't have to be a, you don't have to be called a saint by a pope. You are called a saint by God himself. He has set you apart to be his workmanship, okay? He has set you apart to be holy and righteous. So Paul says, I want you to know that you have been called to be holy. Excited yet? You have been adopted by Christ as a son, predestined according to the good pleasure of his will. Do you know what it means to be adopted? Someone chose you who didn't have to choose you. You were not natural, but you have been grafted into the family of God. And you've been given the privileges of being a son. You weren't born a son. You are a child of God, but now you are a son of God. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have the privileges and all the rights of a son of God. And I'm going to get into that in a minute when we get into inheritance. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been bought and paid for, and we're not our own. We have been, our sins have been forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west. They've been blotted out. You cannot find them because they are not there in God's mind. They've been cast into the sea of His forgetfulness, and they will not be remembered against us ever again. He looks at us as perfectly righteous because He looks at us because of the work of His dear Holy Son. And you need to come to grips with that. When Paul says, I reckon myself and I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. We need to know that. And Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know that. We as your elders want you to know that. This is not arrogance. This is humility. This is complete confidence and assurance that it's him doing the work. I wouldn't want to rest on any assurance that came from my feeble flesh. Because I know my feeble flesh. And there's nothing good in it. It's not subject to God's law and it can't be. I can't please God in my flesh. So I am assured by what God's Word says. And we'll get into more of that in a minute. We've obtained an inheritance, unimaginable, that we have transferred possession. We are joint heirs with Christ. All that's Christ is ours. I pray that your eyes would be able to understand that and your ears would be able to understand that. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we've been accepted in the Beloved. Oh, church at Grace Bible, understand. And I pray that God would enlighten your eyes. And I pray that He would give you eyes to see this and understand this and comprehend this and chew on this. If that was enough, He's made us alive. We're His workmanship. He's brought near those who are far away. He's abolished the enemy, sin and death that was against us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God by power, in power. That's who we are positionally in Christ 
And that's what justification is. We are at peace with God through faith. And so understand that. Paul prayed that they would understand that. If you don't understand that, you're not going to understand sanctification. It's got to start from Him. It's got to be of Him and by Him. He is the one who starts the work. He's the one that's going to finish the work. So we understand these things. And these things come from this theology that we just talked about. If you've got your bulletin, you see what else the knowledge is. I didn't bring my bulletin up here, but I can figure this out. But you are a chosen generation, First Peter 2.9. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're His own special people that you may proclaim the promises of Him, the praises of Him, who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who were once not a people, but you are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now you've obtained mercy. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. I pray you would know that. Secondly, he prays this. And notice that he doesn't pray that God would give them hope. He says, I want you to know that you already have hope. Okay? So when we come to Christ uh, through grace, through faith, and we trust the work of Christ, and we repent of our sins, and we turn from sin to Him, and He brings us into fuller and fuller and more obedience, and we become more and more Christ-like, This is something he wants us to know. It says, uh, 18b, that you may know. What does the word know mean? The word know in Greek is, and I always butcher Greek words, so mock me if you will. Ha, ha, ha. But as I think it's aido, E-I-D-O. It means to understand, but it really means to be able to use this knowledge. What good is it to know all these things if it's not useful to you? And so when Paul says, I want you to know the hope of his calling, he says, I want you to have a sure perception of it. Uh, MacArthur says that this knowledge is, is not a merely intellectual assent, but it's a personal sharing of the life of Christ based on repentance from sin and personal faith in him. So Paul says, I want you to know church at Ephesus. I want you to know Grace Bible. What is the hope of His calling? It comes from Him. And so we know this word. It's the word in 1 John. It's the reason 1 John was written. 1 John 5.13 says, These things were written that you may know, have a clear perception of, and be able to use this knowledge. Be sure of this information you possess. And to believe it, and to live it, and to understand it. So Paul says, I want you to know the hope. What is hope? Hope is expectation. It is sure expectation. Get your pencils ready. Hope is a gift of grace. Second Thessalonians 2.16 Hope purifies us. We just read this verse, 1 John 3, 3. Whoever has this hope in himself, this sure expectation, purifies himself even as he is pure. This purifying effect of hope uh, causes us to live in the reality of Christ's return. And it makes a difference in our behavior. So if we have this knowledge this perception, this usable information that God has engrafted in our hearts, that information and that hope should cause us to live differently. Scripture is applicable and it's practical. And so when Scripture tells us that we are to walk worthy of the vocation, it is because of what Christ has done in us and for us and will continue to do through us in the certain expectation of our final hope. So hope is a gift. It purifies us. It's living. 
It is a day-to-day process. It gives us a confident optimism based upon the promises of this book. It's impossible for God to lie. So when God promises you something, that you have a hope, and it comes from His calling, you are to have a certain expectation that that hope is going to happen. I'm not talking about I hope the Rangers win a playoff game this year. That's based upon a lot of different, obscure, uncertain things. But when you say, I hope in Christ, you are basing this on a sure, steady, anchored foundation based upon His character and who He is. And so that hope is certain and it is sure. So hope is a steadfast anchor for the soul. Everybody knows this verse. 19, it's a picture of an anchor that's thrown overboard when the storms of life come come and go. The boat doesn't go anywhere because it's anchored in Christ Jesus. And so we're not going to go anywhere. God has promised that we're not going to ultimately and fatally fall away. He's told us that nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hands. He's told us that He doesn't lose sheep. He holds on to us. We do not hold on to Him. And so that is a hopeful, steady anchor that comes from His calling in our life. It is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. There's two right here close. So let's look at these Romans. If we'll look at Romans 15. Verse 4, hope is confirmed by the Holy Spirit and, and is defined by Scripture. We'll get to it once. 15.4 Romans, for whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Hope defines is defined by the Scripture. And it is based upon the character and is based upon the work of God. Hope is fulfilled and, and, and brought to being by the Spirit. Look at verse 13 if you're in Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of His Holy Spirit. Hope is a reasonable reality. It is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the church at Corinth that if we have only hope in this world, we are of most men to be pitied. But we have hope for a glorious future. And we have hope in the present Now are we the sons of God. So we have hope for the present. No matter what happens tomorrow in this world, if wars begin, if the stock market crashes, if politicians come and go, that's not our hope. That's not our future. That's not our anchor. Our anchor is Christ Jesus And it's hope, and it's a reasonable reality secured by the resurrection. If we preach Christ crucified, if we preach Christ resurrected from the dead, and Christ isn't risen from the dead, then we have no hope. But Christ is risen from the dead, and He's promised that He would be the first fruits. And He said afterward, those who are dead in Christ will be raised from the dead and will be glorified in body, and forever they will live with the Lord. So hope is secured by the resurrection. Hope defends against Christian attack. Bible says that the helmet is the helmet of hope. And so when we are attacked, when secular media, led by the prince of the power of this air, tells us that we are brainwashed by being Christians, we say, no, we're not brainwashed, we're brain transformed and we're brain renewed. We have the mind of Christ. When they mock us for saying Christianity is a, is a is a crutch in your life. We say no. Christ is our life. 
And we boldly proclaim these truths and it defends us against attack because it protects our minds. And we're not tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine. We're not affected by the culture wars. We know what the Word of God says. So it doesn't matter if, if science says there are 62 different genders. We know there are two. It doesn't matter if a culture says it's okay for this in this relationship. We know the Scripture says God has ordained marriage between a man and a woman. So we, we, we are steadied by the hope of the Word and we're confident in the Word of God and we can be assured by the Word of God. So it is, a, in a sense, our helmet that protects us from stinking thinking. And it helps us to preach the gospel to ourselves instead of listening to the voices in our head. It's the hope of our salvation. It is confirmed through trials. God sends trials to confirm the hope we have. He sends trials to give us assurance that He is working in us. And through the trials, He refines us as silver and gold is refined through the dross and the excessive heat and the pressure of the world. So hope is confirmed through trials. Um, While you're in Romans, if you're still there, look at Romans 5. As he talks about this great doctrine of trials and how they're connected to hope and how this is a great connective process of our sanctification, we see this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. I might as well read the start, right? Therefore, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace reconciled with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Hope never disappoints because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So hope is confirmed through trials. Hope produces joy. Help, hope helps us persevere as we wait for the glorification of our bodies. If you're still in Romans, I should tell you these things, but you're going back and forth. It's good practice. Romans 8, as we see this concept that hope is preserving us as we wait for glorification, we're familiar with these verses. 8.23, I see another law in my... Mer- nope, 7.23. 8.23 tells us, We have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. We eagerly wait for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we're saved in this hope. And hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So it helps us. The Lord Jesus himself is our hope, and we hope for eternal life, Titus 1-2. So Paul prays that we may know by perception, know this knowledge that is usable for us and to us, hope that we have now, we possess it now. He doesn't pray that it will be given to us. He prays that we would know it. Third thing he prays about, it gets better if that's possible. The third thing he prays about, to the church, for the church at Ephesus, as we pray for this for you guys also, and we pray this for ourselves. Third thing, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? What is an inheritance? Something you get when your mom and dad die, right? It's something, a transfer of possessions, Transfer of ownership that you get. 
That's a secular definition of inheritance, not a bad, uh, not a bad definition. Two synonyms uh, to the word inheritance in the scripture, portion and heritage. And so biblical definition is we have a divine right, the gift given to us. So, Jesus Christ is an heir. God the Father has promised him these things. He's promised him a kingdom. He's promised him to rule and reign over all the earth. He's promised him that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's given him a name above every name. He's given Christ these inheritance promises. This is Christ's portion One of the reasons he came to earth was to glorify the Father, and the Father is going to give him this portion as we look at this role of the the Godhead within the Godhead. And so Christ is an heir, and we are what? Join heirs with Christ. We get everything that Christ got. We get all the power. We get the nature. We get the desires. We get the new will. We get the new ability. We inherit what Christ inherited. One day we will rule and reign with Christ. We have great and precious promises. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, he says, O Lord, you are my portion and my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lots. My lines have fallen in pleasant places, and that my soul knoweth well. And then he says, I have a good inheritance. We have a unimaginable inheritance as God's people. Other definitions, it's a gift that God bestows on its people. It's, it's in one word, heaven. It's a sum total of all that is God has promised us in salvation. Christ is the source of the believer's divine inheritance. It is sustained now, and we are seated in the heavenly places. We have the Holy Spirit of promise that lives within us, which is the down payment for the inheritance that we will receive. Our inheritance is incredible. It's ours. We get the righteousness, the resources, the privileges, the position, and the power. Let me read you something from First Peter. It's already been read this morning. We did this purposely that would prepare your heart to understand this as we think about inheritance. Think about what inheritance is as comparable to what we have today on this planet. It doesn't even compare. First Peter chapter 1. We see that our inheritance is, verse 4 and 5, it is incorruptible. What does that mean? Moth, don't eat it. Rust doesn't corrode it. Thieves don't break in and steal it. It doesn't take wings and fly away like money does. It's incorruptible inheritance. We have that. That is our future. It is undefiled. It's free from anything that would deform, debase, or degrade. It doesn't fade away. It endures. It is reserved in heaven for you. It is kept in heaven for you. We are kept by the God's power through faith and salvation. It is being ready to be revealed to us. Inheritance. Think about inheritance in the book of Lamentations, which you're probably going to get to in Keith's class. I don't know when. Lamentations 3.24. As Jeremiah mourns Babylon, captivity, and the destruction of Israel, capital of Jerusalem. He says, it's by your mercies we're not consumed because your faithfulness at grace. Then he goes on to say, the Lord is our portion. He is our inheritance. And so we understand that everything in the universe is ours through Christ Jesus. MacArthur says, God has appointed his son to be heir of all things. Every adopted child will receive by divine grace the full inheritance Christ receives by divine right. Are you able to think about that?
that should create great joy in your soul and great hope in your soul. That we have this inheritance. And it says in verse 11, we've obtained it. That's past. It's already happened. It's ours. It's already happened. It's ours. And so we see that. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 24. He says, all is mine is theirs. And theirs is mine. And I came to give you glory. And he says he's glorified in the gift that we are to him from the Father. And so we understand these things. Last thing that Paul prays about in this text. And he prays that we will understand it and that God would reveal it to us and gift it to us. And it's something that is already ours. Look at verse 19. Fourth thing he prays about And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants us to know that we have the Spirit of God which is in us, and there is an exceeding power in the Holy Spirit. Power. A word that is defined by two different things in the New Testament. One is authority, but one is dynamis. The word we get dynamite from. Paul says, as he prays for the church of Ephesus, that you may be able to use these truths, as these truths transform us, that the Holy Spirit of God is the dynamite in your soul. And it's in your inner man. And so Paul prays that the people at Ephesus would understand and be able to plug into the power that indwells them. And so Paul says that that power is miraculous. It is from a supernatural being, and it flows from the omnipotence of God Himself. That power is inside us, and it is an unlimited resource from which we can draw. Now, I see many reactions to what I just said. And the predominant reaction is, why don't I experience that power on a regular basis? Why do I not understand this as I should? Why do I not live this as I should? And so we're going to get into this in a second. But this power is demonstrated in all three persons of the Trinity. It was demonstrated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember we read this in verse 20. This power that He wants us to know, this great power, was according to the working of the mighty power which worked in Christ when He raised from the dead. The power that indwells us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. This power saves us. For the message of the cross, it tells us in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, is foolishness for those who do not believe, but to us who are being saved, it is the dynamite of God. And so the Holy Spirit's power saves us, gives us eyes to see, gives us faith to comprehend, gives us the ability to trust, gives us a new nature and a new will. So power saves us. Power is given to us. Remember what Jesus said before he ascended from the Mount of Olives. He said, what did he say? Acts 1.8. All power. He says, I give you my dynamite and you shall be what? Witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. God has put within us The power of the Spirit and that power is useful for witnessing. So I pray that as you witness, as you evangelize, as you do Good News Club, as you start knocking on doors, which we may start maybe in the spring, uh, that God would use that power that is in you that comes from Him to be successful in sharing the gospel of Christ. Peter says that his divine power has given us everything we need to be partakers of the divine nature. 
His power is within us. His power, one of my favorite examples of this, is uh, what I was talking to Terry this morning. He asked me to be confident. He was praying for me. And my response to him, I'm right where I need to be because I'm completely inefficient and I have inability and I'm completely dependent on him. And he gave me a heart. But that's what we're to be, is totally dependent on Him. And His strength is made perfect in our what? Weakness. His grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. We don't want our weaknesses removed because that's when God's power is more demonstrative. And we understand that it's of Him. And I can do all things through Christ is demonstrated when we can't. So the next time I ask you to be a home group leader, or the next time we as an elder ask you to get entrusted and start studying the Word to make you more able and capable of being a future leader in this church, we don't want to hear you say, I can't. None of us can, okay? But it's the work of God in us that enables us. Sometimes it is something that we have to step out on and trust. But we are to walk by faith, okay? The power of God does it. It's not us. And so it's manifested in our weakness. And the power of Christ rests on us when we are weak. Paul prayed, he said in 2 Corinthians 12, we can know it. One of my favorite verses, I say that a lot. Paul said, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but faith that's in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. So Paul prays for this power. We can know it. God didn't give us a spirit of what, but of what, what, and what. What did he say to Timothy? Paul didn't, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So, this power keeps us from being fearful. It equips us for the days in which we live. God hasn't given us spear. We're kept by this power. And this power is going to be seen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It tells us in Rome, Matthew 24, 12, that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with dynamite and glory. Power and glory. Jesus preached in the power of the Spirit. Jesus healed in the power of the Spirit. Jesus cast out demons by the power of the Spirit. Jesus endured temptation through the power of the Spirit. Jesus was risen from the dead, arose from the dead by the power of the Spirit. He sits on the throne and right hand of God by the Spirit, and He is coming back in the power of the Spirit. We today have this power in us. It indwells us and it is available to us. And so, as I asked earlier, do you know this power? Have you, have your eyes been enlightened by God's grace? Do you regularly contemplate and meditate on these precious, precious promises, what our hope and what our inheritance is. Here's my question to me and my question to you. What I've just described to you in Ephesians, that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, do these promises seem hypothetical to you? Do they seem theoretical to you? Do they seem to be only for a select group of people? Why are we so powerless? Why are we so unable to see the provision of God available to us now? Are we that far behind in sanctification that we know a lot about God, but we don't know the power of God? 
I ask myself this all the time. Think about we're a very well-read church. We many times, you will talk to me or you will say something to any one of us elders and you will mention these dear people that you read after. These are my lists. And I know a lot of you have the same list. My list is old. My list is mostly people that have been dead a long time, but they still speak. Some of you read R.C. Sproul. Some of you read John Calvin. Some of you read J.I. Packer. Some of you read Martin Luther. Some of you read John Newton. Yes, there are two in here that do. Some of you like Alistair Begg. Some of you like John Piper. Some of you love John MacArthur. Some of you like Steve Lawson. Bridges, you like J.C. Riles, you like A.W. Pink, Jonathan Edwards, Andrew Murray. This is my list, okay? You can have your own list. But if you look at each one of these guys, as we ask ourselves this question, is this just hypothetical? Is this just intended for a few elect people, not for the whole church in general, just for those who have a gift of preaching and teaching? No. What is the common denominator to every one of these guys? They anguished over the Word of God. They loved the Word of God. They're like the folks in Papua New Guinea who were given a Bible and they love it, they cry over it, they hold it and they hold it in their arms and they cherish it and it's precious to them. That's what these guys have in common. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They seek the kingdom of God. They die to themselves. They take up the cross every day. They ask and they seek and they knock. That is what's missing in God's people today. Period. We are a westernized Christian culture and we are lazy. We are comfortable. And we want to be anything than to spend time in the Word of God. We would be ashamed at how much time these people spend reading and believing and trusting this Word. This Word changes them. This Word gives them power. This Word enlightens their eyes. This Word gives them hope. This Word gives them assurance that they are God's people. So my question to you and my question to me is, let us be like these men we respect and admire. Godliness never comes overnight. Godliness never comes on our part as being passive. We are not microwave ovens. We can throw in something 30 seconds and it's ready. Godliness is a lifetime of obedience and faithfulness to God. It's a love for the Word. It's a desire for the Word. And the Word, Keith prayed the other day in our elders meeting, sanctification seems slow and it's a process. But those of us who've been reading and loving the Word for 30, 40 years, we have a great assurance because God's Word has enlightened our eyes. My desire for you is that you would have that assurance and have that confidence and your eyes would be opened and there are no shortcuts to it. You have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to make sure of your calling and your election. Scripture tells us that God knows those are His. The assurance is for us as we read, as we pray, as we see God work, as we see God change us. We are then given a confidence. If we love our brothers... If we regularly confess our sins, if we love the Word, if we are consistently obedient, these are the evidence 
that give us confidence that we're His. Okay? To conclude, Second Peter chapter 1, we did this in a home group. One of the great causes of depression and despair within His people is there's a lack of discipline. And one of the things that Peter encourages his people to do as he's about to die, as ten is dissolving, as he reminds them, he encourages them not to be barren and lifeless and fruitless. But he tells them to do this one thing, and I want you to look at this and think about this as I close miraculously on time. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 11. Those in our group know this. But also for this very reason, we've been given divine promises. We've been given the divine nature. We have this hope. We have this power in us. Look what Peter says. This is our role in sanctification. We're not passive. We have to be active. And God will work it. God will finish it. God will energize it. But also for this very reason, first, Second Peter chapter 1, excuse me, verse 5. For this very reason... He tells us to do these three or four things. And I want you, if you will, start doing these today. And the word he uses is, he says, verse 5, giving all diligence. The word diligence means maximum effort. Maximum effort. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be undisciplined. We cannot forget to read the Bible for two weeks at a time and think God is going to bless that. We can't be prayerless. We must pray in full assurance of faith, asking for His will to be done. We don't get because we don't ask, right? So we ask and we pray in faith to our high priest who's seated who prays for us, who's gone through the touch with the feeling of our uh, adversity, and he understands us. So Peter says, giving all diligence, moral energy, the power that performs deeds of excellence, maximum effort. The word add, look at the word add. It says, add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge self-control. That word add is fascinating. Never knew what it meant. It's in the Greek culture. It's a picture of a orchestra leader leading his orchestral choir. And he is, he has the orchestral wand. Whatever that, what is that called? The thing that you conduct, the conductor's stick. What's it called? Baton. Is that what it's called? So this word means, and this is talking about our sanctification. We add maximum effort. We excise moral energy and we add these things. So we're adding. So you're at an orchestra concert and they're doing Beethoven and the orchestra leaders up there. And this is not a complete and exact metaphor. Okay. But it's an example. The best I got. And so the music starts. He points to the violins and the violins are playing. And then he adds to the violins the violas. Is that correct? He adds to the violas, the cellos, the clarinets, the flutes, until the whole orchestra is playing and there's a cacophony of music. I had to look up that word. That's a big word for me. You have this cacophony of music that surrounds the auditorium and it's all the instruments working together, playing under the dynamite of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're to do. We're to add Diligence and virtue and effort and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness and love. That is Paul's prayer for you. That is my prayer for you. That God would enlighten your eyes. That he would give you the knowledge of what is already there. The hope, the inheritance and the power. And that you would actively participate, not as a passive Christian, but as a Christian that's growing in the knowledge and the favor of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. It's an encouraging word. It's a word that reminds us. And it's a word that stimulates us. And it's a word that most probably steps on everybody in this room's toes. And that's the purpose of Scripture. And we thank you for it. Bring us to repentance. 
regarding this, bring us to full maximum effort and energy. Lord, we want to know you here. We want to know your power. We want to know your grace. And you have prescribed this methodology. It's a hard work. It's a, it's a long work, but it's a profitable work, and it's good for our souls. And I pray that you would open up eyes of Grace Bible Church for this truth, and then you would give us this enlightened eyes and mind, and you would put us to work for your kingdom, your glory, as we wait for your imminent return, being found faithful and busy. And we desire to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of my rest. May you give us grace for this task. In your name I pray. Amen.